Welcome to the Northbound Wealth Podcast. All opinions expressed by me, my co-hosts, or my guests are solely our own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Northbound Wealth Management, LLC. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment, tax, or legal advice, or as a solicitation to offer or buy any securities. Clients of Northbound Wealth Management LLC may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hello, this is Brent Foster, founder and CEO of Northbound Wealth Management. Welcome to the Northbound Wealth Management Weekly Market Insights on the Northbound Wealth Podcast. This is our 34th episode, 34th week doing this, and uh, really excited to keep this thing going. It's, uh, it's been a lot of fun. First of all, I do want to share with everybody an article that was released by Charles Schwab, actually. Um, That's where we custody our assets of Northbound Wealth Management. So custody services are offered uh, to our clients. The, The majority of them are through Charles Schwab and company. And this letter was released today by Mr. Charles Schwab, founder and co-chairman, uh, alongside Walt Bettinger, who is the CEO and co-chairman of Charles Schwab and uh, in light of recent events. So I just want to read this to you guys um, so that you guys uh, have an update as to the strength of Charles Schwab given recent events. And I'll go over that here later in the podcast today, March 13, 2023, what they wrote to their entire client base. Today, we released our regularly scheduled monthly activity report and commentary from our chief financial officer. In that release, you can read about the strength and resilience of the Charles Schwab Corporation. Though we do not normally comment on these monthly releases, given the market environment we find ourselves in, we thought it was appropriate to do so at this time. For over 50 years, Charles Schwab has prided itself on being a safe, secure, and strong financial institution. The result of managing the firm with a thorough or through the eyes of the uh, through client eyes strategy and effective disciplined risk management practices. We understand though, with the heightened attention in recent days, people may still have questions to the extent there are questions about any impact on Schwab. We want to clarify a few important points. Number one, Schwab has a broad base of high quality customers across multiple lines of businesses, capital well in excess of regulatory requirements, a high quality and relatively small loan book, a conservative investment portfolio that is 80% comprised of securities backed by the U.S. Treasury and various government agencies. We believe one of the best indicators of strength and stability of the firm is our client activity. For our February results show that clients entrusted Schwab with more than $41.7 billion in new assets, our second strongest February ever following our strongest January ever. Our growth and momentum have continued in March with daily net new assets of over $2 billion per trading day, month to date, including Thursday and Friday of last week. Following the recent events in the banking industry, we are pleased to see the U.S. Treasury Department, Federal Reserve, and FDIC step in with decisive action to support depositors during this critical time. We think the steps announced today provide an additional layer of protection for individuals and will help boost confidence in the American banking system. Collectively, more than 80% of client cash held at Schwab Bank 
is insured dollar for dollar by the FDIC, according to S&P Global Market Intelligence. That percentage is among the highest of the top 100 U.S. banks. As a comparison, the banks in the news in uh, the last few days have been between 2% and 20% of their deposits insured. As a further safeguard, Schwab has access to over $80 billion in borrowing capacity with the Federal Home Loan Bank, or FHLB, which is an amount greater than all our uninsured deposits. That helps provide the firm with significant access to liquidity, so money is there when clients need it. Investments at Schwab are held in investors' names at the broker-dealer. Those are separate and not commingled with assets at Schwab Bank. Schwab does not have any direct business relationship with Silicon Valley Bank or Signature Bank, so we do not have exposure to any direct credit risk from either. Schwab's long-standing reputation as a safe port in a storm remains intact. Driven by record-setting business performance, a conservative balance sheet, a strong liquidity position, and a diversified base of 34 million-plus account holders who invest with Schwab every day. As such, we remain confident in our approach and in our ability to help clients through all kinds of economic environments. We stand ready to support our clients with award-winning service and time-tested expertise. Charles Schwab, founder and co-chairman, Walt Bettinger, CEO and co-chairman. I wanted to read that letter they sent out to everybody today, uh, given the light of the, the, the couple of bank failures that have happened, and it might kind of uh, rattle the tree of investors and, and asset managers and the like. And so uh, the strength of Charles Schwab is why Northbound Wealth Management chose Charles Schwab as a custodian. Uh, it's a long-term relationship. I love Schwab and what they've done. Um, I've been at past employers where they've uh, utilized Charles Schwab. Mercer, back in uh, the early days, right before the financial crisis, and Charles Schwab uh, came through uh, even stronger than ever uh, in supporting Mercer Global Advisors back in uh, pre, like a 2005 all the way through 2009. So uh, I really appreciate Charles Schwab and their partnership with Northbound Wealth Management. All right, here we go. We're gonna dive in in the next segment on the last week's performance of the equity markets, which you'll wanna pay attention to. There's been a lot going on, so stay tuned. Stocks stumbled last week as investors reconsidered their interest rate expectations after Fed Chair Powell's congressional testimony that rates may need to go higher. Stocks were rattled uh, when a West Coast bank was placed into receivership on Friday following a run on deposits. Crazy that in 2023, we'd ha actually have a bank failure and a run on deposits. I'm going to talk a little more about that uh, coming up on the podcast, so stay tuned for it. But here we go. The Dow Jones Industrial Average dropped 4.44%, while the S&P 500 lost 4.55%. The NASDAQ fell 4.71% for the week. That was last week. The MSCI EFA index, which tracks developed overseas stock markets, slipped 0.37%. So what does that mean for the Dow? The Dow closed at 31,909 and change. Year to date, that's down 3.73%. NASDAQ closed at 11,138. That's up 6.42%. Uh, for the year. Uh, MSCI EFA index closed at uh, 2,062. That's up 6.12% for the year. S&P 500 closed at 3,861. That's barely up for the year, 
0.58%. Ten-year Treasury note closed at 3.7%. That year-to-date is down 0.18%. Uh, so rate fears, bank scare, uh, all kinds of stuff going on. Uh, congressional testimony on Tuesday by Fed Chair Powell uh, said that uh, interest rates may require a higher increase faster than planned. That unnerved investors, dimming the hopes of any pause in rate hikes this summer. After stabilizing the following day, stocks trended lower as the financial sector came under pressure. The lower uh, move was triggered by the specialty bank's uh, liquidity issues. That's uh, Silicon Valley Bank and a crypto bank. So though regional and money center banks could not escape the selling. So it was like basically throw the baby out with the bathwater, start selling across the board. And uh, you'll hear about that as actually today, uh, which from Friday to today, basically the markets halted trading on all the banks uh, because of what was going on, which is unprecedented really. It's just nuts. Labor market strength in a Friday report exasperated rate hike anxieties, though cooling uh, wage gains balanced and above consensus new jobs number markets appeared to take the employment report in stride, but fell on worries arising from the shutdown of the tech centric bank. So Powell's congressional testimony, which I watched last week, Fed Chair Powell last week testified on Capitol Hill, which he acknowledged the economy was running hotter than he expected. He said that labor market strength uh, and stubbornly elevated inflation may require the Fed to raise rates quicker than anticipated and above levels previously contemplated. The market did not respond well to Powell's change of tone. Many uh, now see the potential of a 50 basis rate hike coming out of the FOMC meeting on March 21st through 22nd, uh, instead of the expected increase of 0.25% or 25 basis points. Powell did say the FOMC would consider the money the monthly employment report released last Friday and upcoming inflation reports before arriving at a decision. Well, now he's got a straight up <laughs> liquidity problem and a bank failure to have to consider as well. That's why Goldman Sachs came out this morning saying that, you know, they're not, they, he, they don't think that, that uh, Jay Powell's going to actually raise interest rates. Now he's going to be forced to pause. I don't know about that. Actually, if it's not systemic, then why not just keep raising? tamp down inflation? Why Why have another bank bailout? If people can't manage their money correctly at a bank, 16th largest bank in the country, uh, then then there's that's another problem. And if they're financing a lot of the venture capital money out there, uh, well, a lot of those venture capitalists in the tech space had too high evaluations anyway. And a lot of these, a lot of these investments that Silicon Valley made were underwater. So it's their own uh, their own fault. So it'll be, I'll be really curious to see how this plays out. But again, I, I just kind of went off on a rabbit trail there. There's going to be more data that I share, more information that uh, you'll be intrigued about uh, coming up on the podcast. So stay tuned for that. So uh, this week, key economic data, Tuesday, consumer price index, Wednesday, producer price index, retail sales, Thursday, jobless claims and housing starts. And then Friday, industrial production, consumer sentiment, and the index of leading economic indicators. This week, notable companies reporting earnings. Wednesday, Adobe and Lennar. Lennar will give us some insight into how the housing market's going for uh, new home builds. Thursday, FedEx Corporation on shipping. And then we've got uh, Dollar General Corporation, which will give us an idea of how the lower end consumer's doing. Uh, here's a tax tip for the week. Uh, make note of this, be vigilant and protect yourself from texting scams. Cause you guys are all, we're all filing taxes here in the next couple of months. 
uh, or filing extensions. But unfortunately, instances of IRS-themed tech scams are on the rise. And these scams, uh, scam attempts could put your sensitive tax data at risk. Most of the scam messages look like they're coming from the IRS and have fake messages to lure you into providing information for things like COVID relief or tax credits. They may also ask for your information to help you set up an IRS account online. Be aware of these scams to protect yourself and your data. Remember, the IRS does not send emails or texts asking for personal or financial information. If you receive a text like this, report it to the IRS by emailing phishing at irs.gov. That's P-H-I-S-H-I-N-G, phishing at irs.gov. And this tip was adapted from the irs.gov website. All right, on to this bank failure that we all have to deal with and address and think about where you have your actual deposits uh, at banks. Um, because you certainly don't want to be in a situation like all the people uh, that had their uh, bank accounts sitting at Silicon Valley Bank. So here we go. We're diving right in. Stay tuned. On March 10th, I came across an email from The Motley Fool, and they sent out an email to all of their clients that they recommended invest in Silicon Valley Bank. And it says here, Dear Fools, earlier this morning, trading of SVB Financial, ticker symbol SIVB, was halted indefinitely after the company's announcement this week of a planned capital raise on top of $1.8 billion loss from the sale of part of its bond portfolio. This afternoon, California banking regulators, along with the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or FDIC, announced the shutdown of Silicon Valley Bank, the retail banking arm of SVB Financial. These institutions then created a new bank as the receiver of all insured deposits of Silicon Valley Bank. The announcement from the FDIC is here. We have yet to hear from SVB Financial, the parent company, which operates Silicon Valley Bank. Various foolish services have uh, recommended shares of the parent company. Those shares remain halted for trading as of this afternoon. So that was on, again, March 10th. At this point, investors, including us, have no choice but to wait and see what happens with the value of the common shares and for the stock to trade again. While the parent company does engage in other activities, including a private wealth management division, as well as securities and investment banking operations, we don't currently know how intertwined these operations are with the retail bank that is now in the hands of the FDIC. Here's the unfortunate reality. Given the obligations of the retail bank and the number of corporate debt holders, we're not optimistic that the parent company will have much equity balance that represents remaining value for common shareholders. Again, however, we'd like to stress that we and other investors don't currently have full visibility into the extent that liabilities exceed assets at the bank. And this means we just don't know about the future viability of the parent company. We realize this is a very difficult situation for SVB and shareholders and depositors. Obviously, we have far higher expectations from a company that has been the go-to firm for venture capital funding and banking for 40 plus years. We remain committed to updating you as news unfolds. If and hopefully when shares open for trading, we will update you on what we're thinking. As of now, like you, we are 
waiting to hear from the company and for the stock to start trading again. So SVB Financial provides credit and banking services to the Motley Fool. Andy Cross has positions in SVB. Uh, Asit Sharma has positions in SVB. Tom Gardner, Gardner has positions in SVB Financial. The Motley Fool has positions in SVB Financial. The Motley Fool has a disclosure policy. So I thought that was very interesting. Um, it doesn't sound like uh, the Motley Fool sniffed this one out with the way that their balance sheets were and what was going on. So I'm going to parlay into the next article that talks about in detail what happened. Here we go. So this is probably the best article that I've come across. In, and it was, it was almost immediate when, they, when he released this. Mark Rubenstein from Net Interest. Um, he gets all the credit for this, uh, underwriting of what, what, uh, his take is. Um, and he obviously knows what's going on, um, at length of what, what, what happened, uh, inside the failure of Silicon Valley bank. And he wrote a blog piece. It's entitled the demise of Silicon Valley bank. And I, uh, got this email from him over at net interest at substack.com. So he gets all the credit. Mark Rubenstein, well done, well written. March 10th, here we go. When you're not working, what do you do to de-stress? It's a good question, right? That was the last question Greg Becker, CEO of Silicon Valley Bank, fielded at an investor conference on Tuesday this week. Cycling is my advice, he replied. Living in Northern California and being on the peninsula, that's just... I think it's the best bike riding cycling in the world, period. Three days later, Becker's Bank is in receivership. We've talked before about the interest rate risk that lurks on banks' balance sheets and how the industry manages it. During the pandemic, banks took in record volumes of new deposits between the end of 2019 and the first quarter of 2022. Deposits at U.S. banks rose by $5.4 trillion. With loan demand weak, only around 15% of that volume was channeled towards loans. The rest was invested in securities portfolios or kept in cash. Securities portfolios ballooned to $6.26 trillion, up from $3.98 trillion at the end of 2019. And cash balances went up to $3.38 trillion from $1.67 trillion. When banks purchase securities, they are forced to decide up front whether they intend to hold them to maturity. The decision dictates whether the securities are designated as, quote, held to maturity, end quote, or for short, HTM, which is held to maturity assets, or as, quote, available for sale, end quote, or AFS assets, available for sale assets. HTM, or held to maturity assets, are not marked to market. Banks can look on uh, nonchalantly as bonds lose values. They remain glued to the balance sheets at amortized costs regardless. By contrast, AFS or available for sale assets are marked to market, a purer designation, but one that injects an element of volatility into a bank's capital base. For smaller banks, regulators look through this volatility, but for banks with over 700 billion in assets, that volatility directly impacts regulatory capital. 
Initially, banks favored the flexibility that AFS gave them. And if conditions changed and they wanted to sell, they could do so without such a fuss. Sell even a single bond out of an HTM portfolio, however, and the entire portfolio would need to be remarked accordingly. Through 2020, around three quarters of banks' securities portfolios were held as AFS or available for sale. But when interest rate expectations started to shift and bond prices began to slide, having been sitting on mark-to-market gains on their securities portfolios, banks started to see losses emerge. Unrealized gains of $39 billion across banks' AFS portfolios at the end of 2020 swung to unrealized losses of $31 billion by the end of 2021. To staunch the bleed, many banks reclassified AFS securities to HTM. This meant recognizing losses up front, but the switch would protect balance sheets from further losses as bond prices continued to fall. The largest bank, JP Morgan, transferred $342 billion of securities from AFS to HTM, taking its weighting of AFS down to 30%, Others followed suit across the industry. The weighting of bank securities held AFS shrank from three quarters to just over half by the end of 2022. But rising rates didn't present cosmic challenges around how banks classify their bond holdings. They also gave rise to more fundamental challenges around how to manage the portfolio. Although bank treasury executives witnessed a brief tightening cycle in 2017 to 2018, they had never had to contend with as sharp a rates move as occurred in 2022. Different banks adopted different strategies. JP Morgan retained a lot of cash and chose to ma manage its AFS book aggressively. We sell rich securities and buy cheap, said CEO Jamie Dimon on his third quarter earnings call. Fifth, third decided to wait before deploying its excess deposits and securities. We can afford to be patient, its CFO said on an earnings call in January 2021. Fifth Third arguably made its move too early in 2022, but nevertheless was able to lock in slightly better yields than banks that had bought into the market sooner. Some banks got it completely wrong. First Republic is one we discussed in October. Another now apparent is Silicon Valley Bank. So let's take a peek into Silicon Valley Bank's balance sheet. Silicon Valley Bank was set up in 1983 to service the burgeoning tech ecosystem taking root in the Valley, Silicon Valley, that is in California. Revised regulations eased the process for acquiring a bank license and Silicon Valley Bank became one of 72 new banks launched in California that year. It grew slowly, surviving a real estate wobble that led to a big write-off in 1992 before confronting tech boom and bust several years later. Silicon Valley Bank offers tech companies a range of products, deposit services, loans, investment products, cash management, commercial finance, and more. Because younger companies tend to have more cash on hand than debt, most of the bank's money is traditionally made on the deposit side of the business. Driven by the boom in venture capital funding, Many of Silicon Valley's customers became flush with cash over 2020 and 2021. Between the end of 2019 and the first quarter of 2022, the bank's deposit balances more than tripled to $198 billion, including a small acquisition of Boston Private Financial Holdings. This compares with industry deposit growth of only 37% over the period. 
Around two-thirds of the deposits were non-interest-bearing demand deposits, and the rest offered a small rate of interest. All in, at the end of 22, the cost of Silicon Valley deposits was up 1.17%, up from 0.04% at the end of 2021. The bank invested the bulk of these deposits in securities. It adopted a two-pronged strategy to shelter some of its liquidity in shorter duration available for sales securities while reaching for yield with a longer duration held to maturity book. On a cost basis, the shorter duration AFS book grew from $13.9 billion at the end of 2019 to $27.3 billion at its peak in the first quarter of 2022. The longer duration HTM book grew by much more from $13.8 billion to $98.7 billion. Part of the increase reflects a transfer of $8.8 billion of securities from AFS to HTM, but most reflected market purchases. Based on the current environment, we'd probably be putting money to work in the 1.75 range said the bank's CFO at the beginning of 2022, referring to the yields he wanted to achieve. The vast majority of that being agency mortgage-backed, mortgage collateral, things along those lines, he said, end quote. The trouble is that when rates started to go up, mortgage assets got hit hard. The duration of Silicon Valley's HTM portfolio extended to 6.2 years, as at the end of 2022, and unrealized losses snowballed from nothing in 2021, in June of 21, to 16 billion by September of 2022. That's a 17% mark to market hit. The smaller AFS book was also impacted, but not as badly. Mark to market losses there amounted to 9% by the end of September. So, so big was this drawdown that on the mark-to-market basis, Silicon Valley Bank was technically insolvent at the end of September. It's $15.9 billion of HTM mark-to-market losses completely subsumed the $11.8 billion of tangible common equity that supported the bank's balance sheet. Remember, though, that these losses don't have to be recorded on the bank's books. And so Silicon Valley CEO could take his bike for a spin without a care. Although not great for its margin, much higher yields were now available in the market than the 1.65 to 1.75% the bank has chased. The situation wasn't fatal. The good news is that the securities portfolio is constantly paying down. And so we're roughly seeing about $3 billion a quarter said the group CFO on his third quarter earnings call. It would take a long time, but the losses were expected to unwind as bonds redeemed. What neither the CEO nor the CFO anticipated, however, was the deposits might run off faster than they anticipated, which is odd because they'd seen deposit runoffs before. In the aftermath of the dot-com crash 20 years ago, deposits at the bank fell from $4.5 billion to $3.4 billion by the end of 2001. As consumers drew down on their cash reserves. The chief risk officer may have spotted some clouds, but she didn't hang around to find out. She left her role in April of 2022 after selling some stock in December and was, wasn't replaced until January of 2023. This time around, deposits fell from $198 billion at the end of March of 2022 to $173 billion at the end of December and $165 billion by the end of February 2023. 
Part of the decline reflects a system-wide contraction. Prior to 22, there had been only 10 quarters of deposit outflows in the U.S. in the past 50 years. We've now seen four quarters of outflows, but the factors that led to Silicon Valley Bank gaining deposit share on the way up are instrumental in its losing share on the way down. In order to reposition its balance sheet to accommodate the outflows and increase flexibility, Silicon Valley this week sold $21 billion of available for sale securities or AFS securities to raise cash because the loss, $1.8 billion after tax, would be sucked into its regulatory capital position. The bank needed to raise capital alongside restructuring. Unfortunately, the capital raise never got done. The bank chose to announce its balance sheet restructuring the same day that Silvergate Capital announced it's going into voluntary liquidation, which Silvergate was a crypto bank, basically. We spoke about Silvergate here last week, and that's what he said in his blog piece. You can check it out there at uh, Net Interest Substack. Uh, the business models are quite different, but the treasury challenges are not. Both banks struggled to contain bond losses at the time they were losing deposits. Consumer fear turned Silicon Valley Bank's trickle of deposit outflows into a flood. Heart attack in the treasury. We've never really uh, had a bank run in the digital age. Northern Rock in the UK in 2007 predated mobile banking. It is remembered via images of depositors lining up patiently outside uh, suburban branches. In 2019, a false rumor on WhatsApp started a small run on Metro Bank, also in the UK, but it was uh, localized and quickly resolved. Credit Suisse lost 37% of its depositors in a single quarter at the end of last year as concerns mounted about its financial position, although at least in internationally, high net worth withdrawals uh, would have had to have been phoned in rather than executed via an app. The issue, of course, is that it is quicker and more efficient to process a withdrawal online than via a branch. And although the image of a run may be different, it is no less visible. Yesterday, Twitter was a lit with stories of venture capital firms uh, instructing portfolio companies to move their funds out of Silicon Valley Bank. People posted screenshots of Silicon Valley Bank's website struggling to keep up with user demand. Greg Becker, the bank CEO, was forced to hold a call with top venture capitalists. I would ask everyone to stay calm and to support us just like we supported you during the challenging times, he said. The problem is at Silicon Valley Bank is compounded. It's, it's compounded by its relatively concentrated consumer base. In its niche, its customers all know each other, and Silicon Valley Bank doesn't have that many of them. At the end of 2022, it had uh, 37,466 deposit customers, each holding in excess of $250,000 per account. Great for referrals when business is booming, such concentration can magnify a feedback loop when conditions reverse or are bad. The $250,000 the, the $250, threshold is in fact highly relevant. It represents the limit for FDIC insurance. In aggregate, those customers with balances greater than this account for $157 billion of Silicon Valley's bank's deposit base holding an average of $4.2 million dollars on account each. Wow, that's incredible. 
The bank does have another 106,420 customers whose accounts are fully insured, but they only control 4.8 billion of deposits compared with more consumer-oriented banks. Silicon Valley Bank's deposit base skews heavily towards uninsured deposits. Out of its total 173 billion deposits at the end of 2022, 152 billion are uninsured. So how could the bank have satisfied customers' deposit demands? One thing it couldn't do is tap into its held to maturity or HTM securities portfolio. The sale of a single bond would trigger the whole portfolio being marked to market, which the bank didn't have the capital to absorb. It could have enticed depositors back with higher rates, such as what Credit Suisse has tried to do recently, in particular Silicon Valley Bank oversees $161 billion of off-balance sheet client funds at the end of uh, as of the end of February 2023, which it could have seduced back onto its balance sheet. But the bank already offers 1.17% on deposits, which is almost twice the 0.65% median of large U.S. peers and well over 250000 and you're not insured. It could have borrowed the funds last year. Silicon Valley Bank tapped the, the Federal Home Loan Bank of San Francisco for $15 billion and it had capacity to borrow more. We discussed the Federal Home Loan uh, Bank of San Francisco here last week on the context of Silvergate. They're the ones who pulled their funding lines to Silvergate, tipping it into liquidation. At year end, SVB was already their biggest borrower, accounting for 17% of advances. To lock in that borrowing, Silicon Valley Bank had to pledge 19 billion of its assets. The problem is, is it doesn't come cheap. The bank paid 4.17% on its total short-term borrowing uh, borrowing cost at the end of 2022, which federal home loan bank funding is the largest slice. Against a yield of 1.79% on the HTM securities portfolio, it is not a particularly attractive enterprise. All of these, all of this is now moot. Its crisis meant that the capital raised to cover AFS portfolio losses was pulled, leaving Silicon Valley Bank undercapitalized. Earlier today, the bank was closed by the California Department of Financial Protection and Innovation, who have had a busy week with Silvergate as well, which cited inadequate liquidity and insolvency. The FDIC was appointed as receiver. All insured deposits have been transferred to a newly created bank, the Deposit Insurance National Bank of Santa Clara. Uh, uninsured depositors, meanwhile, are left hanging. They will receive an advanced dividend next week, which is this week, with future dividend payments contingent on FDIC selling Silicon Valley Bank assets. Fortunately, Silicon Valley Bank's resolution plan is still fresh. The bank became large enough in 2021 that regulators required it to draw up a living will on a three yearly cycle. Silicon Valley Bank submitted its first one in December. Afterward, for the industry overall, the episode is likely cast a long shadow. It's been 868 days since a bank failed in the US, close to the longest stretch on record. In the meantime, consumers have been informed of the risk, evidenced by the growth of uninsured deposits, including in digital wallets. One of the features of banking crisis is that they rarely repeat consecutively. This matters because policymakers have a tendency to craft regulation around the last war. U.S. stress tests include all manner of scenarios for bad credit, but few for interest rate shocks. The severity adverse scenario for 10 years 
Treasury yields is 0.8 to 1.5%. The baseline scenario reflecting a shallower recession incorporates yields of 3.2 to 3.9%. In Europe, interest rate risk is overseen by regulators through the liquidity coverage ratio or the LCR. It requires banks to hold enough high quality liquid assets or HQLA, such as short-term government debt, that it can be sold to fund the banks uh, during a 30-day stress scenario designed by regulators. Banks are required to hold HQLA equivalent to at least 100% of projected cash outflows during the stress scenario. Credit Suisse withstood its surge in deposit outflows with an average LCR of 144%, albeit down from 192% at the end of the third quarter. Silicon Valley Bank was never subjected to the Federal Reserve's LCR requirement, even as the 16th largest bank in America, it was deemed too small. It's a shame. Regulation is not a panacea since banks are paid to take risk, but a regulatory framework to suit the risks of the day seems appropriate and is one U.S. policy makers may now be scrambling for. And uh, Mark Rubenstein says, thanks for reading. And if you find this piece helpful, hit the like button. Definitely go out and check out his blogs, Net Interest, a fantastic article about Silicon Valley Bank. Thank you, Mark, for putting that out. Happy to share that on the podcast. Guys, know where you bank and uh, understand uh, uh, FDIC insurance. Those are the two takeaways as well. Know where you bank, know your bankers, know how strong their balance sheets are. Bank with those institutions that are doing a good job with their reserve requirements and managing their, their loan books and understanding just basic uh, finance around interest rates and deposits and how uh, we're in the new age of technology where not everybody can just go into the bank and pull money out. They go on an app and they transfer it out. So uh, anyway, there you go. Um, the markets are selling off. Actually today, it looks like the banks, the KB uh, index, which is the, the regional banks index uh, was frozen on trading and halted. So We'll see how that shakes out, but the markets are down um, from last week to this week, all because of this news. And we'll see what Jay Powell does here on the 21st to 22nd during the Fed meeting. That'll have a lot to say about how low the markets go. The S&P did sell off to 3,800 um, and change. And we'll see if we gap down to 3,500 as a floor, which is what I anticipated would happen. I didn't know that a bank failures would be the trigger for that, but uh, it obviously is a catalyst. So we're going to be monitoring the, the bear market scenario that seems to be playing out rather than a bull market case. And that's kind of where this the stock market's at. It was really at a pivotal point last week and this week, whether it's going to be the uh, a new bull market uh, trend shift, like a pivot to a new bull market, or if we're going to fail and go down uh, and continue this bear market downtrend we've been in for a while. Um, so, uh, I'll update you guys next week on technicals, but enjoy the week. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you soon next time. Thanks.